This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. From Hospice Chaplains and Audio Hive Podcasting Studios in Joliet, Illinois, this is the Hospice Chaplains Show. I'm Saul Abema. And I'm Joe Newton. Our guest today is Jason Bennett, who is a hospice chaplain in South Georgia. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you, Saul. I'm glad to be here. Could you give our listeners a little background of your childhood? Where did you grow up? Yes. Uh, I grew up in the uh, Atlanta area, just kind of on the uh, the north side of Atlanta. And uh, I'm the uh, the oldest of three brothers. Uh, you know, my parents, I was one of the, we were one of the fortunate uh, families. Our parents were together, uh, you know, um, all their lives. And uh, uh, childhood was really just kind of idyllic. Um, you know, our parents were uh, always there. They were always involved in, uh, you know, if we were playing uh, sports, a sport of some type, you know, both of our parents were there. They coached us. They drove us to practices. Uh, you know, I never remember uh, really any kind of sport, no matter what it was, whether it was uh, soccer or football or tennis or basketball, that that one or both of my parents were were not there. So they were they were very, very involved with uh, with us in, in our activities. And so uh, that was great. And, you know, we uh, they raised us in in church. And so I you know, I'm a I'm a I'm a blue blood been, you know, I've been going since I was in the cradle, and so it's just been a <laughs> been a, a part of my my life uh, for, uh, for for a long, long time. And so, um, you know, we um, we did a lot of stuff uh, together as a family. We liked to uh, to go camping. Uh, we lived near a, uh, a lake, uh, and we where we would go and we'd camp at the lake. We water ski, do those kinds of things. And so just, I just have some, some really great memories of, uh, growing up with my mom and dad and my, my two younger brothers, uh, just kind of outside the, uh, the North Atlanta area. So what was your childhood dream? Oh, wow. Um, Believe it or not, when I was <laughs> when I was very young, I uh, I actually wanted to uh, to become a uh, a minister. I had um, I had an uncle that was a minister, and he kind of had an influence on me in that way. And so, just from from early on, that's kind of what I wanted to do, and I sort of felt uh, God's call. One spring day in uh, in seventh grade, as I was passing from one building to another, it just sort of it, it's kind of like you know, y'all, I walked into the beam of light, and it's like like the Lord <laughs> called me in that moment, and it was like, okay, maybe I'm going to get to do kind of what I've always wanted to do, and so that was uh, you know, that was that was it. I, I wish it was something more glamorous, like a baseball player or something like that, but no, it's just being a pastor. That's what I <laughs> that was kind of what I wanted to do as a kid. Interesting concept at such an early age. I mean, there. Uh, who influenced you at that point to uh, to 
think about or even, you know, in seventh grade, I never thought about, you know, I, try, I tried to think more of getting out of church than I did <laughs> going to church. <laughs> True. And, uh, you know, how did that, how does that work? Yeah, I was in a, uh, a really strong youth group at the time. And uh, my youth minister came into my life at really just the right season. Uh, he lived just a couple of houses up from me. And so I would get to go spend time with him and his, and his family. And, you know, it was then he would kind of talk to me about different things and I would have questions about youth ministry and, and youth pastoring and what all that took. And, you know, he kind of painted it for me. Well, you know, you get to hang out with kids, you get to, uh, you know, you, you play softball, eat lots of pizza and sort of, that was sort of my mindset at the time. I thought that sounds that sounds like a lot of fun. So I'm, you know, you can sign me up for that. And then, you know, the more I got involved, uh, in my church and the more I got involved in the, um, in our, our youth group, the more I realized that, well, you know, this is something that I, that I really enjoy. I started spending uh, a lot of time, uh, more time with my friends from my youth group than, than friends from school, other things like that. And, um, I began to notice I had some uh, some leadership ability, and our our youth pastor noticed that as well. And so he started giving me more and more uh, responsibility. And you know, I think it's just uh, it, it just sort of uh, enveloped my whole life uh, during that time. And it uh, I think it just kind of naturally paved the way for me to be interested in it. Uh, then, like I said, you know, I sort of felt God's call toward that. And then it just is like the sort of the dominoes all kind of lined up at that point. I look at your childhood and I look at mine and you, you seem like a saint. Uh, what did trouble look like for you as a youth? <laughs> no, definitely not a saint. Definitely not a saint. I, you know, like I said, I, I had two brothers. So, you know, we got into everything. We broke stuff. We got out. We, uh, you know, we snuck out of the house. <laughs> there was a time when I was in high school that uh, I wanted to uh, go and, and spend time with a uh, with a, a girlfriend and, uh, you know, wasn't supposed to do that. And I snuck out of the house anyway. And it, it did not go well, you know, grounded, took away my car, all of that stuff. So, no, definitely not a saint. I spent a lot of time uh, being grounded. Uh, I spent a lot of time with the uh, the dad lectures about responsibility and how you need to do the right things. And this is what you need to be. Uh, this is how you need to behave. So it was, uh, we, we found ourselves in a, in a good bit of trouble. So you spoke about uh, your uncle being a minister and then your youth pastor, these two role models uh, modeling what, would, what you would eventually become. Uh, could you identify some of those qualities you saw in those two ministers that shaped who you became? Yeah, I think with my uncle, it was just, you know, he was he was family. That's what he did. And, uh, you know, I saw the way he cared for people. And then with my own youth pastor, um, it was the way that, that he interacted with us. You know, he, he genuinely cared for us. He um, he was open and, and welcoming to, to uh, students, wherever they were coming from, you know, it didn't matter what background they came from, what socioeconomic uh, uh, background. And so, you know, he was really welcoming uh, to all people. And he kind of showed and modeled for me what it means to, uh, to love and have compassion uh, for, for different people. 
So moving forward, uh, who led you into the, okay, the educational part of all of this and how you came into, uh, and have you served churches and all that kind of stuff? Yes, it was, um, when I was a, a senior in high school, we had a, a work release program, a co-op program. And so I uh, signed up for that because that meant I could get out of school at 12 o'clock. And I was all for that because school was not really my thing. Uh, didn't really care for it, would rather be out doing something else. And so um, my mom played a real big uh, role in how I kind of got into ministry and took those next steps. She spoke with my uh, youth pastor about the possibility of me coming to work as an intern. And so that kind of happened. And so as I was a a senior in high school, uh, I would leave at 12 o'clock along with uh, some of my other classmates while they were going to, uh, to work at, you know, restaurants and grocery stores and do landscaping and stuff like that. I was going to, uh, to work with my youth minister and helping him, uh, plan youth retreats and, and, uh, mission trips and, and, and things like that. And so, uh, you know, and it was during that time, he kind of would tell me what I would need to do if I wanted to consider this as a career. And so, um, you know, I started looking at schools at that point and uh, I found a, a university that, was not too far away from where I lived, a couple hours away, and uh, was enrolled and accepted and started kind of training, uh, started my training then. How was university life like, studying theology? What was that like? Um, what helped you to form your theology even more? You know, it was a slow-going process. So, you know, you said earlier that my, my childhood sounded like a saint. Uh, it, when it come, <laughs> came to my academic career, I was about as far from saintly as you could be. Mm. It was uh, it was a struggle for me. I didn't really care for it. I wanted to be out, and so when I got into uh, into to college, it was a new experience for me. I was away from home for the first time, and uh, you know I had all these uh, had all these new um, opportunities, all these great new friends I was meeting. Uh, being in part of these uh, social clubs on campus. And I had a great time my freshman year. Uh, Academically, not so much. But as far as socially, man, I really did well uh, Mm. that uh, that freshman year. And so, you know, I just, uh, I wasn't wasn't very focused and I did not do very good. In fact, I ended up leaving school after my freshman year. I, I moved back home. And uh, I took a job working with a uh, working with a church as uh, as its its very first youth pastor. So I got to kind of develop uh, the the youth ministry program there, and I did that for a couple of years before I finally decided to uh, to go back to school. And I have almost a similar story. I remember um, I went to seminary in two thousand one in in Soweto at the Baptist College, and after a few classes, I quit. <laughs> I left and I went to, you know, to do some business in the streets um, until the school called me back after about six months to come back saying, hey, you have a scholarship here from America to study. Come back and take it. So sometimes that moment away, when I came back, I was more focused and I was more determined and I was able to follow through. It looks like that's what happened to you too. Yeah, that's what what happened to me, and it was um, 
you know, I went back and I earned, uh, I earned an associate degree in, uh, in 99. I got married in 2000. And um, then, you know, that's sort of where life began to, to get in the way of things, ended up leaving school uh, again uh, for a while. And uh, it wasn't until several years later that I went back and finished the last few classes I had for, uh, for my bachelor degree. And I went immediately from that into, uh, into seminary where I completed my, uh, my MDiv. Could you tell us a story of how you ended up in your current church where you've been there for 12 years? Yeah, I was, uh, working in, uh, in Panama city, Florida, and I was feeling the call to, uh, to preach and uh, this church where I am was was looking for a uh, a new lead minister, and through some acquaintances, they got in touch with me. They knew that I was starting to make that transition, and they had me come over for uh, for a weekend to to visit and try out and preach and interview. And uh, they had me back a couple of more times, and it just seemed like the right fit. And so we kind of made the made the plunge and we we moved here accepted the call in uh in march of 2009 and we've we've been here ever since let me reintroduce you before we take our break our guest is jason bennett who is a hospice chaplain but also a full-time pastor we'll be right back we've been waiting waiting for covid19 vaccines to be developed now waiting for them to get to us but you can do more than wait you have powerful ways to help slow the spread right now and protect your family and loved ones too. Here's how. Watch your distance. Stay at least six feet away from folks you don't live with. It's risky to be indoors with them too. And of course, avoid crowds. Also, wear a mask. CDC reports masks protect the people who wear them and folks around them. And wash your hands using soap and water for 20 seconds and do it frequently. Vaccines won't make COVID go away overnight, but they give us a real chance to finally overcome it. As long as we keep watching our distance, wearing our masks, and washing our hands. Learn more about vaccines at cdc.gov coronavirus. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is Sole Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Jason. Uh, could you tell us your journey to becoming a hospice chaplain? Yeah. It, like everything else in my life, has been kind of a, a long, slow journey, a long, slow process. I, I first felt the initial call to chaplaincy right after uh, 9-11. I was uh, working uh, as a, a pastor and just feeling something after the uh, the attacks on 9-11. I thought, you know, I, I, I would like to do something. And so I started thinking about chaplaincy. And so I went and I met with a Navy recruiter. I had had family that was in the Navy. And so I thought, well, I just kind of go and talk with them. And I went and talked to them about it. And I took my ASVAB test and uh, did okay with it. And then we got to talking about uh, what it took to be a chaplain. And I realized that I had none of what it took to be a chaplain. Uh, I think like uh, like a lot of people, and maybe even a, a lot of uh, pastors, I thought you could just, if you did one, you could do another, not knowing that there was a lot more education and not knowing there was a lot more uh, training with CPE and all of these things that you needed. And so it was a, 
it was kind of a, it was, it was a long way for me. It was very much out of my reach, uh, at that point. And so, um, I decided, um, not to, to do it. I, I was a newlywed at the time. I'd been married just for, uh, uh, not quite two years. Uh, my wife was on board and she was supportive, but we just felt like, you know, I just felt like at that time it wasn't, um, it wasn't, it wasn't right for us. And so I continued in, in ministry. And then in February of 2002, I am getting ready to go to a meeting and I got a call uh, from someone who my mom works with, which was, had never called me before. So it was very unusual. Uh, and it was that something had happened with my brothers. Uh, both of them had been taken by ambulance to the hospital and I need to drop everything I'm doing and, uh, quickly get to Atlanta. And uh, we were living in, in Alabama at the time. And so I, you know, my wife came home from work. We just threw some stuff in a bag and we made the, uh, the four hour journey up to Atlanta and, uh, we got there and as we walked into the, to the hospital, uh, it seemed like there was about 50 people around and I, I didn't know what was going on. I was totally confused. I was, my wife and I were ushered into a, a family room and, um, my dad said that, uh, both of my brothers had apparently, uh, overdosed on, uh, on heroin and, um, they were working on my youngest brother, Matt. Uh, and then he said, uh, Micah, my middle brother, he said, and he said, Micah, Micah has died. Micah passed. And, you know, I just remember all these emotions coming over me. Uh, my first emotion was anger. And I stood up and I grabbed a chair and I threw it against the wall and um, just uh, just trying to, to, to process all of that stuff. And, and of course, they told me um, they they told me that that Matt was was uh, still alive, but he had a 50 50 chance, you know, is he going to make it? Is he not going to make it? And, uh, turned out that he did, he did survive. And, um, uh, and then, you know, that changed, uh, it, that changed my whole outlook on, uh, on a lot of stuff. I'd never experienced a death that was that close, uh, before. And, uh, it, um, it changed how I went about dealing with, with people and kind of understanding stuff that they were going through and struggles that they were dealing with. And, uh, so then my uh, younger brother and I, he started, we started after he kind of recovered and got back on his feet, we started traveling around and sharing our story and, uh, able to, to, uh, minister to a lot of people, to help a lot of people. Um, time kind of went on, he ended up getting married and, uh, then his, his, uh, his life hit a rough patch and, uh, he moved in with, uh, my wife and I, my sons for a little while, kind of got his feet under him again, uh, readjusted his life, moved back down to, uh, to be close to his children. And in, um, in November of 2012, uh, got uh, a call that nobody could find him. And so I started making phone calls and, um, just no answer all day long. I finally received a call from a detective uh, late in the afternoon that my brother, uh, my second brother had overdosed again and he had passed away. And so, you know, it was uh, the losses of, of both my brothers. I think that uh, prepared me 
to enter into these arenas of, uh, of pain. And um, I don't know if I began to be um, comfortable, I guess, with people that were uh, having struggles and dealing with grief and sorrow that, that people who had uh, had significant losses or traumas in their life, uh, all of a sudden I was able to connect with them uh, in ways that I had never been, been able to. And then uh, a couple of years ago, my dad uh, just kind of had a, uh, just kind of a, a freak accident where he was uh, thrown from a horse and it broke uh, uh, all the ribs on one side of his body. And he just, he wasn't able to recover from that. He passed away uh, after a 21 day stay in the hospital. And, um, you know, I think, uh, I think part of those three experiences have, uh, helped, um, shape me and in, in some ways prepare me, uh, for, for what I, what, uh, what I do. And so, um, you know, I went on and I, uh, found a, uh, a CPE, uh, center that is at a hospital in, in Tallahassee, Florida, just about 30 minutes south of where I live. And I was accepted into that extended uh, unit program. And I went and um, I got a, a unit through the uh, through the hospital. And after I completed that unit, they um, they offered me a position as a uh, as a flex chaplain. So um, so I, I I took that and. Uh, kind of thought that's what what I would be doing. I would uh, just kind of be working in uh, in hospitals, and uh, they were getting ready to begin a residency for uh, for the first time. And uh, I was offered a, a spot in that residency, and I was really excited about it. Uh, at the same time, you know, I'm still working as a as a pastor, and the the time commitment just wouldn't. Uh, allow me to do it. You know, I'm a, I'm a husband. I've got two kids. The the stipend uh, for the residency, while it was it was good, it wasn't enough to do that alone and support my family. So I had to um, I had to step away from the um, from the residency, and I just kind of thought that oh, okay, here's I'm getting started. It's just gonna it's kind of ending, and I didn't know what I was gonna do. And so I remember just kind of sitting with my, my frustration for a day, uh, just wondering, you know, what I was going to do. I've, I've spent this time doing the, all of this training and now, you know, here, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. And, uh, the next day after I'd kind of licked my wounds for a day, I, uh, kind of got motivated to, to look for online CPE and I was able to find some. And at the same time, I found a, um, uh, an opening for a hospice chaplain in the town that I live in, in Thomasville. And uh, it had not been there just a couple of weeks earlier because I had just been kind of looking just to see what was out there. And uh, all of a sudden here was this, this opening. I called about it. They said, come in today, interview. This was on a Friday by Monday. They had offered me the job and uh, I thought, okay, well, I'll just, uh, I guess I'll do hospice chaplaincy for a while. And, and this is where, you know, I was really, um, uh, really mistaken about what hospice chaplaincy was. You know, I had been trained in, in hospitals and I thought, you know, that was where the action is. And this is where, you know, it's intense and you're, you're answering traumas and you're dealing with codes and deaths and, 
you know, it's just always one thing after another. And I kind of looked at uh, hospice chaplaincy as, uh, you know, well, that's, you know, that's kind of like, that's kind of like JV chaplaincy, but I'll do that for a little <laughs> while. And man, I was wrong. I, was I have never heard it called <laughs> JV chaplaincy. It's, it's funny though. I mean, but it, you know, there are people who did think like that. I mean, I'm yeah. sorry. You're not the only one. You know, yeah, we I'm, still I'm, we still have problems today with people challenging what it is that we do. Right. So yes, okay, you uh, thought it was easy. Continue. Yeah, please. <laughs> well, I'm no, sorry. No, no, let me clarify. I didn't think it was easy. I just thought it wasn't as going to be as demanding. Okay. I think I didn't think there was going to be uh, as much action uh, as I had dealt with uh, in the in the hospital. And what I found out is it was uh, it was just as much. Um, action just it was just a different kind of action and uh, the more i got into it the more i realized that while the one of the the big differences between working in the hospital and working in in homes and and nursing facilities is whereas in the hospital i might see a patient uh twice if they happen to stay in the hospital for a few days but more than likely they were there for a night they would go um or I would, you know, work as a, I was a flex chaplain. So I rarely work two days in a row. So I might see a patient, but not see him again, because it might be three or four days before I'm back at the hospital, or they're just in for an emergency. I see them in the emergency room, they would be dismissed. And, uh, you know, you kind of um, moved from patient to patient in that way with, with hospice, you know, I got to go back, I, I got to make monthly visits. And I, I, I started to learn about their their history i started to learn about what was important to them and uh hear about um you know the the things in their life that that mean something their their family the their work life um if they were involved in church and and things like that their hobbies and i realized wow this is okay this is this is this is in a lot of ways this is heavier than i ever imagined uh, because I'm getting now to uh, really be a part of these people's lives and developing uh, relationships with them as we get to. And I got to walk through that that journey, whether it be just a few weeks or whether it be several months. And, man, it was it was then that I really uh, felt a, a true uh, and deep love uh, for uh, for hospice chaplains. The question I have for you, Jason, is you've given us an, uh, an incredible journey. Uh, how has your deaths in your family uh, f- kind of focused your hospice ministry? Has that been helpful? Uh, yeah, I think it has been helpful. Um, as I, you know, I mentioned a little while ago, um, and I, you know, and I don't know if, if if this is the right way to even say this, but it's 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 helped me to be comfortable uh, around death. I think. Okay. Um, you know, I, I wasn't there when when either one of my brothers died. I was standing at my dad's bedside when he passed, um, and so it's it's helped me in that it it it's not something that's taboo for me. Uh, it didn't, it didn't scare me away and, uh, it's helped me to, um, be comfortable in, uh, in, in ministering to, to family members or, or patients that have received a terminal illness or, or their loved one has passed. And, you know, the kind of the chaos just kind of 
settles down over them. And I, I think all of that, uh, the trauma surrounding my brothers, surrounding my dad, uh, I think all of that has um, helped me to operate in a, in a certain peace. And so it's, uh, it's been very beneficial in, uh, in, my, in my hospice chaplaincy ministry. Yeah, with that, we'll take a little break. You're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, and our guest is Jason Bennett. We'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Jason Bennett. Uh, Jason, as I listen to your story, you've had multiple losses. And I remember um, in my life, I also encountered uh, a lot of multiple losses, but what I remember is I considered death to be an enemy. Mm. In fact, I lived for a long time looking at death as the ultimate enemy. And um, it took a, a while to transition and to accept that this is you know, part of life. You lost your two brothers, you lost your dad. I mean, it's too tragic, it's too dramatic. How did that transition happen for you uh, to be able to work peacefully in the field of death and dying? I think that um, it, like everything that I've mentioned so far, it's just gradually happened. I don't know that I can isolate it to a, a particular moment where it was uh, like, you know, death. Is, is, is an enemy and I'm running from it to all of a sudden, okay, I get it. It works. I, I can be comfortable with this now. I think it just sort of uh, gradually happened. And as my younger brother and I, Matt, my baby brother, as, as he and I began to travel and, and speak about our, our family experience, we met uh, a lot of people who were um, had, had dealt with you know, death and dealt with people who had overdosed, were dealing with overdoses themselves, were dealing with, with being uh, addicts and, and, and stuff like that. And uh, I, I think it was then that uh, it started to happen, that as I would, all of a sudden, I am given uh, an, an opportunity to be in the presence of people that were really having a lot of struggles and I think it was just kind of a, a slow immersion into it that as the more I and my brother interacted uh, with people, the more I think I came to see that, yeah, okay, it, it is a part of life. And, uh, you know, some people, uh, they, you know, as, as we talk about helping them have a good death, but then there are a lot of people that, uh, man, they, they their, their deaths are, are very sad and very, very tragic. And it, um, it, just helped me to become more, I think, at ease uh, and more at, at, at peace as I interacted with, uh, with people. And uh, that has sort of 
been a, a catalyst for you know doing this on a on a daily basis. You know, back then, there's no way I could have done this on a daily basis. There was just no way. I could not have uh, spiritually. I was not mature enough to handle it. I would not have processed it well. Uh, as a matter of fact, early on, you know, I dealt with uh, a lot of anger surrounding my my middle brother's death that, that I didn't know I was dealing with. And I look back now and I see... Um, uh, some of the ways that uh, I went about my ministry at the time and realized it was driven by uh, not only anger, but it was driven by, I think, fear of um, seeing specifically teenagers kind of repeat some of those same choices that had gone on uh, with with my brother. And so I, I responded uh, in, in that way. But as I began to uh, do more work on myself and, and, and do that CPE work where you learn to really do a lot of self-reflection, I realized that uh, I was carrying a lot of that anger and that I was carrying uh, some of these things. And as I began to reflect more, I also realized that, okay, that um, for me, it, it feels as if even in the midst of all of that, that pain uh, that I had experienced in my own life, but also that I had the the privilege of entering into with other people that, you know, God was right there with me, being patient with me, allowing me to grow and to see and experience things. And uh, it helped me to um, just become more and more, I think, uh, accepting of, of what has, has gone on around me. Um, and then it's helped me to be um, more and more, um, I think, comfortable in, in walking into some of those areas with others. I, I, I sit here and I'm thinking about all these stories that I have about how things have worked out for me in this ministry. And I know this interview is with you, so I'm not going to you know, bore you with my story at this point. But I just, I am, I'm just curious. I'm, I'm just wondering when you walk into a patient's home, room, wherever you meet them, and you go there, and how are you prepared? I mean, you have such a maturity now about your understanding of death. How do you prepare yourself to walk in to be just the chaplain and to see what it is you are to do? I try to uh, spend uh, the first part of the, the morning, and when I say the first part of the morning, I mean in the rush of getting up and getting my kids ready and out the door and dropping them off for school. And between the dropping them off for school and the commute into the office, just taking some time to to center myself and to it's it's then that I pray. Uh, you know, I pray for my family. Uh, I pray for our hospice team uh, that um, you know that we can be what each individual, what each family needs us to be in, in those moments. And that, uh, uh, that we, and, and me specifically, that I'm able to be present uh, in that moment. And so uh, I, I, a lot of times I'll, I, I, I will just stop and kind of pause before I go in trying to, to make sure that I am focused because it's, 
easy, uh, especially as, you know, as anniversaries of deaths of family members roll in and as holidays come around, you know, I mean, we're coming up on the two year anniversary of my, my dad's death. I mean, this time two years ago, he was in the hospital. And so, you know, it's easy to let that stuff, uh, get in the way of what I'm trying to do and, and to, to, to transfer what I'm feeling onto patients and family because they'll share a story. And I think, Oh, you know, I've dealt with that. And that, you know, it ends up, <laughs> yeah, I'm yes. not paying attention to what I'm doing. The, the visit becomes about me. And, um, and, and so I just try to, when I, when I think about it, just try to pause. And, uh, a lot of times I'll, I'll may read, you know, what their diagnosis is. If I don't know who they are and, uh, like if it's a, a new assessment. So I know kind of, a little bit about them when I, when I go in. And I think that helps me to, um, doing those things kind of help me to stay, uh, focused, um, as I, as I go in. How would you define your theology of care? I think I locate my, my theology of ministry, um, in the, uh, in the, I think the, in the incarnational presence of Jesus. Uh, you know, I think about, uh, him um, coming to coming to Earth, taking a taking a human body, dwelling uh, among his his people. So I think about that that incarnational presence, and I, I really locate it in uh, in the story in, in in Mark chapter five as uh, Jesus is kind of going about his day, and the, the synagogue ruler who you know is not going to be best friends with Jesus runs up to him with a, you know, his daughter's dying. It, it, it doesn't matter what he thinks. It doesn't matter what he believes in that moment. All he knows is he needs help. And so he runs to Jesus and then Jesus agrees and they start making their way toward, you know, toward, toward Jairus's house. And the crowd is following probably in hopes of, of seeing a miracle at this, you know, this, this leader who's probably well known. And, um, then you have this the, the woman, the nameless woman, who sort of stumbles out of the crowd. She's not supposed to be there. She touches the robe when she shouldn't, you know. Uh, the, uh, she sort of takes the healing. Uh, it wasn't really given to her. And, uh, you know, Jesus kind of stops the whole procession right there with her. And, you know, um, you know, he could have just said, okay, you're healed. Go about your day. You know, he could have gone on to the, to the, the you know, the big ministry. Uh, that he was going to do with Jairus, but he he took the time to to sit in the road and, and listen to her story. And, you know, she suffered for 12 years. You don't tell a 12-year saga of suffering in just a few minutes. You know, that takes time to to listen to and to to unpack with with someone. And he took the time to to sit and to to listen to her tell that story. And of course we know that, you know, he blessed her. He, he called her daughter, sent her on his way. And then he went and, and, um, and healed Jairus's daughter as well. Um, but you know, that story is, I think what, what helps me. And, and I remember being asked this in CPE, you know, what is it that helps you get behind the door or what helps you to get into a, a person's home and it's that that incarnational presence and and recognizing that Jesus was willing to to minister to everybody to the great and to the small and he gave us he gave just as much time to what we would consider the small as he did to the to the great and uh, my my um, 
my CP instructor, uh, she was really great. She said uh, one time, she said, you know, of all the disciplines in the in the in the the healthcare field, those that go and spend time actually in patient care, you know, she said everybody's busy, everybody has things that they have to do, and one of the gifts that chaplains are able to give to patients is the the gift of of listening that we and this is how she put it she said we have the time to sit and to to listen to someone's story and that really uh really impacted me and the more i i thought about that the more i i thought about that that story uh in in mark chapter five i realized that you know this is this is one of the 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 greatest things that we get to do is to to sit at, at a patient's bedside and, and listen to their, their life, to listen to their hopes and their dreams, to um, walk with them through their, their disappointments and their frustrations, to um, listen to their, their questions of, you know, why they're dealing with this and what's happened to them and help them to, to find meaning in their life. And I think that's kind of, that's where I, where I, I, I locate my theology of, of ministry. How does your hospice deal with that philosophy, that theology at this point. I mean, we've talked to chaplains who have, well, you have to have this amount of time with the patient and you can only have this amount of time with the patient. How does that, is there a conflict at all sometimes with what their expectations are and with what you want to do? Uh, no, there, there's not. I, I think I have the, uh, the freedom to, to spend as much time as a patient needs or a family needs, uh, you know, we had a, I was with a family uh, for about three hours uh, a few weeks ago. That's just, which is not typical of what I do, but it was uh, a death occurred during the visit and uh, mm-hmm. a, a family member fell out in the floor, uh, which was a, seemingly a, a heart attack uh, after his uh, relative had passed. And so it was, you know, then dealing with EMS and family and, funeral home and it was just not the time to leave and so it was uh, you know it was a three hour long visit that led right up into our IDT meeting. Uh, now you, and, I mean the, the, the idea is that you know what it is then that you need to know when it's time to call it a day and when you need to stay. Right. right. And, that is, uh, yeah. and that's 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 what in, when you really understand like what you were talking about in Matthew uh, the whole idea about it's not about you. Right. I mean, excellent. That's excellent. So, Jason, how do you take care of yourself? I mean, you're doing an amazing job as a full-time hospice chaplain, then an amazing job as a pastor, and then you have a family. How do you take care of yourself? I, uh, I spend a lot of time um, uh, on, on Saturday mornings. I like to get up, and we have, uh, we're fortunate to be blessed with a lot of country roads uh, in the surrounding area where I live. And so I like to get up and just ride through the countryside, uh, through the fields and the valleys and the, and, uh, you, sometimes I'm listening to a, uh, to a podcast. Sometimes I'm listening to the hospice chaplaincy podcast. Actually, well, you, you better be. <laughs> I am. Yeah. That's, uh, that's one of my, that's, uh, you know, that's one of my favorite podcasts. And so I'm, I'm listening to you guys. Um, occasionally I will listen to music, but a lot of times I don't listen to anything. I just, ride mm. and just kind of take in my surroundings 
and uh, just enjoy what I'm what I'm seeing. You know, uh, it, it always is better with a cup of coffee <laughs> at my side. Um, but we uh, we like to camp too. We like to spend a lot of time camping, and so we try to build in trips. In fact, we're getting ready to go camp in about uh, two or three weeks after Easter uh, wraps up. We're going to go camp for a little bit, and then um, you know I, I coach my uh, my oldest son in in soccer, and that's uh, that's one of our great loves and. He's now into uh, middle school soccer, so now I'm getting to watch as a dad, which is just a complete different aspect, and uh, it's just been a you know it's been great. But all of those things have been kind of uh, restorative, and they are restorative to me. What are your final thoughts? Whew. It is. I'm in an unexpected place. I never imagined. When I received that call to ministry in seventh grade, that I would be journeying with people um, through their their final moments, and I'm I'm often amazed. And a lot of times, it's when I'm riding around. You know, I'm often amazed at the the honor and the privilege that we have to to do this, especially when a when a family asks me to uh, to conduct a funeral. You know, what, a, what an honor that is uh, to be able to speak uh, at, at someone's uh, funeral or memorial service about their life and, and, and their death. And, you know, it just, uh, what it also occurred to me recently that, that hospice chaplaincy is, uh, it, it takes place, it, it happens in, the, in the, the thin place. You know, I think it's maybe the, the Celtics that talk about the, where, where heaven and earth are so close together. There's that thin place. And, you know, a lot of times that's where we get to operate mm. uh, with these families as they are getting ready to transition from, from life on earth into, into the next life. It's just such a privilege to be able to do that. Wow. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. Thank you guys for having me. That was Jason Bennett, who is a hospice chaplain in South Georgia. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. 